and welcome to the Globepedex podcast. As the United States is beginning to open up, we are cognizant that this is not the case for most of our global community. So we are excited to continue this podcast and provide connection, content, and support to Oregon's hub of global changemakers. My name is Andrea Johnson, and I am the chair of the Globepedex Advisory Board and the Executive Director at Green Empowerment. In today's Speaking Change podcast, we are joined by Michelle Rodzinski. Michelle is the Executive Director of Spoon Foundation. Spoon programs bring critical nutrition and feeding practices to children without family care and children with disabilities. Michelle has a background as a pediatric speech-language pathologist specializing in the communication and feeding of children with severe disabilities. She worked at the Emanuel Children's Hospital here in Portland, where she developed and ran an augmentative communication clinic serving nonverbal children from the Northwest and co-founded Spoon in 2007. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Andrea. It's great to be here. So I know quite a bit about Spoon. I'm so happy to have you as a guest. But for those that may not be familiar, do you mind doing a quick overview of Spoon, kind of your mission and your work to orient our listeners? Yes, sure. So Spoon... um addresses malnutrition for two groups of children who are underserved. They're often left out of community nutrition programs. And these are children with disabilities and children living outside of family care. So the latter group is children living in orphanages, foster care, kinship care, um, different types of care that are not with their families. And these two groups of children often overlap. So a lot of children in residential care facilities have disabilities. A lot of children with disabilities, even living with their families, are at high risk of being sent away from their families for a lot of reasons. And these are two groups of children who have very unique needs when it comes to nutrition and feeding. And those needs are usually not addressed. And as a result, they have very high rates of malnutrition. So at Spoon, we build the capacity of those caring for these children to allow them to improve their nutritional status. So you're one of the co-founders back in 2007. Can you tell us a little bit about the backstory and why you started the organization, kind of how you got involved? Yeah. So um, like you said, at the time, I was a speech-language pathologist, and my entire caseload was children with severe disabilities, meaning that most of them had feeding issues and nutritional issues, but they were being addressed. It was here in Portland. They were being addressed, but I had a background in that. And um, I, I had an experience with my daughter, who I adopted, And, you know, I used to tell her story in great depth because I was very inspired by it. It's an inspiring story. But I have learned over the years to not overtell her story. Um, She's 20 now. It's her story to tell. In fact, it's her story to write. And I think in my telling of her story, I end up writing her story. And it may not be the one she wants written. And so I've learned over the years to, to not tell that story. I have to admit it's hard for me and I wish I could tell it because it's, it's very inspiring. But, you know, the gist of it is that I, I learned from her that um, there are relatively simple things that can be done to take somebody from being very malnourished to being very healthy and thriving. And that can be done by training others to do these simple techniques And I was talking about this with my friend at the time, Cindy Kaplan, and she had had some similar experiences with nutrition and feeding issues with her son. And it just slowly turned into spoon over the years. We started talking to other people and reaching out to people who knew way more than we knew. 
and we learned some ways we could help. Um, we started out, I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for Cindy, but she'd probably say the same thing. I started out very naive. I thought, I thought maybe there are children living without families in other parts of the world and we could ship them vitamins and that would solve some problems. I, I really thought that. Uh, luckily, we reached out to people who knew better and they set us straight really quickly. And, <laughs> and the first thing they said to us is, you need to understand what the problem is. Um, are children in orphanages around the world malnourished? I mean, that's question number one. Um, one of our early advisors was a professor of public health who had worked with the WHO for many years. And, and he said, I'm guessing that the children in orphanages are better nourished than the children in their communities because they get three meals a day, like maybe they're government provided or, or whatnot. He said, but I don't know. So we started out and we did a study in Kazakhstan, it was our our very first thing when when Spoon became a thing. We didn't have any employees, but we had these great advisors. And we did a study where we compared the nutritional status of children living in what are called baby homes. They're, that's a nice word for orphanages from age zero to four. And we studied their nutritional status and compared it to children in the nearby kindergartens in their same community. And it turned out that the children in the communities who lived in families, 15% of them had one or more indicator of malnutrition. So that means the children living with families, 15% of them were either stunted where they weren't growing in height, they were underweight or wasting or had micronutrient deficiencies. The children in the baby homes, the orphanages, 73% of them had one or more indicator of malnutrition. So it wasn't even close. It was stunning. I mean, our our advisors themselves were like, whoa, we had no idea. We did not expect to see this. And that was the beginning of Spoon. That was when we realized, okay, we're, we kind of understand the problem or, or we have the beginning of understanding it. And now we've got to figure out what some of the solutions are. That's a really amazing example of how rather than just diving in with the thumbing that you thought was right, you took the time to really understand the problem. I feel like that is a great lesson for a lot of us that are trying to have any impact, whether here in our local community in Oregon or globally. Um, one of the things I'm noticing as you speak, and I know, you know, we know each other outside of this podcast that you've mentioned before, is around how much words matter when you're talking about the children that you're trying to support and the caregivers themselves. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit on, you know, you aren't using the word orphan as an example. Yes. Could you elaborate and maybe share some of the context and, and how language matters in this instance? Yeah, so a large percentage of children who live outside of family care actually have families. And the, the reasons they're not living with their families are, are complex and varied, uh, but most of them have living parents. And so to call them orphans is not accurate. And it presents this picture of a lot of children who need to be rescued, perhaps. And, and really, what they need are supports so they don't end up having to leave their families. There, there are, of course, some cases where their families are not the best places and, and they need new family care, whether it's foster care or adoptive families or kinship care, meaning, uh, you know, a, a relative or something. But, you know, the, the real problem at the heart of the problem is that there aren't enough supports to keep these children in their families and communities where they are healthier and safer and 
kind of emotionally supported and and so just even even a simple word like using the word orphan sort of perpetuates this other narrative that a lot of people think is true. And so we're just careful not to use that word. Yeah, that also makes me kind of think about, you know, you're talking pretty tangentially about just white saviorism in general. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. especially when you're talking about orphanages um, or kids in, in different challenging situations, you know, there have been some really hard stories coming out around volunteerism in orphanages in Africa, for example. And so how have you developed your organization, your programs to try not to perpetuate, you know, white saviorism or some of the challenges that you're kind of alluding to? Yeah, that's a great question. And it goes back to um, kind of the, the first thing you commented on that when we started Spoon, we listened to other people. And this is another area where we really had to listen to people who knew much more than we knew and set up programs that do not perpetuate volunteerism or or making orphanages better, so to speak. I mean, absolutely, children who are living in those situations, it's a human right that they have health and good care. Um, they cannot be just left there to rot away, which honestly there have been movements to sort of do that as well, that if you completely ignore the children in orphanages, then no more will come there and it'll kind of dry out. Seems a little aggressive. Right, exactly. That's not the solution either. But on the other end of it, you can't make them so good and so attractive that they're better places. You don't want kids going there to get an education and to have it be their only place to get good nutrition. Um, so we've got to land somewhere in the middle, and I think I think Spoon has done a good job over the years of landing in the middle. And and what that is is addressing the basic human rights of the children living there. And and at the base of human rights is good health. So we can improve the systems that are serving those children to ensure they get good health. But part of those systems should be beyond the orphanage. So we also need to improve the systems that sometimes land the children in the orphanages. For example, it is not an uncommon scenario for a parent to be caring for their child with disabilities at home and to be struggling with their feeding and the child is malnourished. Very common scenario. The parent is doing everything they can. The child's malnourished. They go to a a medical professional and they say, you know what, I think your child would be better off in the orphanage. We can take care of them better. That is a common story and we can't let that happen. So when we're improving the systems for the children in the orphanages, we need to improve it for that child as well so that when their parent asks for help with their feeding or nutrition, they can get it and keep that child at home. In the same vein, we need to improve the system so children can leave orphanages and remain healthy. So there there are movements to deinstitutionalize children, great movements, but it's not easy. You can't just take a child out of an orphanage, plop them in a family, and everything's going to be okay. It's a huge transition. A lot of needs crop up for children, and one of those needs are their feeding and nutrition needs. And so when children are deinstitutionalized, they need systems in place to help make it successful and keep them healthy. So one of the things, you know, you mentioned this work starting out in Kazakhstan, but I understand that you're working in a much broader geographical area and also here in the Pacific Northwest. Like how, when you're talking about these systems issues and trends, 
how different are they here versus abroad? And, or what are some of the things that might be common or the same? Yeah, you know, um, all children living outside of family care, so that includes children in U.S. foster care, they are at greater risk of malnutrition and feeding issues just by virtue of that alternative placement. And so in the broadest sense of the word, children in U.S. foster care have a lot of the same needs as children that we're serving overseas. They are different. There, there, are, there are unique um, issues to both populations, but the fact that they've got these unique needs um, puts them in a place where we feel like we have something to offer at Spoon because of the work we've done elsewhere. So we do have a program uh, throughout Oregon right now, and we're at the beginning stages of expanding that nationally. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And do you feel like you're having to do kind of relearning in terms of listening to understand some of those systems? Or is it really transferable? Or maybe a combination of both? It's a combination of both. So right now, what we do in Oregon is we've created a curriculum around the feeding and nutrition needs of foster children. And it's a a curriculum that somebody can use within their own system. So Um, you know, a community organization that trains foster parents can take our curriculum and adopt it and use it within their own system. So it's more that um, we have to figure out who are all the systems that could benefit and how can we create a curriculum that's adaptable to all kinds of different ways of training. That makes a lot of sense. So I think one of the things I'm interested in hearing from you is around kind of the vision of the world. So do you envision a world where Spoon doesn't have to exist because these systems are somehow aren't, you know, there isn't this gap or or what does that look like for Spoon or, or when you think about that vision? Yeah, I mean, I feel like we have to envision that, you know, and uh, at nonprofits, we create, you know, our mission statement and our vision. And to me, the vision is that perfect world where our services are no longer needed. And I think we kind of have to have that North Star. It's it's a dream, but it would be wonderful if all children were cared for in families that had access to services that met their nutrition and feeding needs. Um, I'd, I'd like to think that we could be phased out in the decades to come and or maybe adapt to fill a new gap that's sort of related to what we do. Yeah, I think that's an important way to think of it because, you know, when you're talking about kids shouldn't even be in orphanages as one of the examples, um, it seems like the systems that would solve that ideally would take into consideration nutrition and feeding as well. Right, right. It's it's an integral part of it. And like, let's say there was a world with no orphanages. Um, I do believe there would still be a need for that nutrition and feeding support for children with disabilities or children at risk within their families. And so I, you know, I I think realistically there's always going to be a gap for us to fill. It would be nice if it shifted and, and was able to meet children in better places for them. So not to shift the conversation too much, but you know, a lot of our listeners are, you know, working in organizations or leading organizations and trying to have an impact themselves. And because you were a founder and now serve as the executive director at Spoon, it'd be really nice, I think, if you could share maybe some aha moments um, that you've had as you've grown this organization. Sure. You know, I feel like 
we've had regular aha moments. And the first one I've already mentioned, and it was that very naive thinking of how we could send something simple and solve a problem. And so by, by always reaching out to other people and listening and paying attention, we, I think we've had a series of aha moments. Another one early on was around feeding. So when we first started, we only addressed nutrition in kind of the purest sense of, um, improving what the children were fed and perhaps adding vitamins to to their regimen. That was the very beginning. And uh, my co-founder, Cindy, at one point was watching the children being fed in an institution somewhere. And there was a child with disabilities being fed. And she was appalled and blown away. Um, honestly, I think because of my background as a speech pathologist who saw a lot of children being fed, I, I had forgotten how awful it was to see kids being fed in this horrible way. And she didn't have that background. And so when she saw children with disabilities being fed, she was appalled. Um, children with disabilities are often fed flat on their backs in residential settings because it's quicker and you can have gravity help. And so children who can't chew or swallow well anyway, are laid down and fed really, really quickly. Um, and it's often a texture that they can't even handle. And, and and another way that they're often fed is they'll take a bottle, fill it with like a porridge kind of substance, like a thick substance, cut the bottle nipple off, and then just put the bottle in their mouth and let it drain out. And the kids just swallow as fast as they can. And as you can imagine, a fair amount of it goes into their lungs. And so kids with disabilities in residential care facilities have just this chronic upper respiratory issues. And kids without disabilities have the chronic upper respiratory issues too. Um, for a lot of them, it's because of the way they're fed. And so up until then, we had only dealt with sort of the nutrition side. And then we had this aha moment of like, oh, it's not just what they're fed, it's how they're fed. If you were feeding them the most nutritious food possible, but you were feeding them in this way, they're not going to remain healthy. And from that moment on, we addressed nutrition and feeding, and it's become a very, very big part of what we do. That's an amazing example. Thanks so much for sharing kind of that that hard-to-hear um, aspect, because I think it really helps emphasize for those of us who aren't as familiar the problems and the extent and, you know that unfortunate visual though like really helps you realize why feeding is so important and I mean not, not something I've ever been exposed to personally so I imagine a lot of our listeners are surprised by that yeah and it's not a one-off thing um every country we've gone to we have seen that it's not like specific to the culture of one country it's specific to the culture of alternative care um children who don't have that one-to-one care, the mother-child care, the caregiver-child one-to-one care are fed in ways like that. And, you know, another example is it's it's not uncommon to see babies like lined up and bottles just propped on them. You know, one caregiver comes by and just prop a bottle, prop a bottle, prop a bottle. And so again, you can imagine that liquid isn't necessarily going where it needs to go. I mean, first of all, it's not breast milk. Secondly, it's probably not even high quality formula. It's some watered down something, maybe animal milk or or maybe a watered down formula. And then it's propped in. Sometimes a baby might get it. Sometimes the bottle falls out of their mouth and that's it for that meal. 
Or sometimes it ends up in their lungs and then they get sick and then they lose their appetite and then they don't eat for a while. And then it becomes this really um, bad cycle of a child doesn't want to eat. They get sick, then they get malnourished. That makes them not able to eat. And, and it becomes this cycle of malnourishment and kind of disability. So it sounds to me like a lot of the feeding kind of techniques would it require like hands-on training. So how have you all been able to adapt kind of your organization with the pandemic and being remote? And what does that look like for Spoon, who is a pretty small team working globally? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, before March 2020, our model was we would send our specialists, usually a nutritionist and a feeding specialist, we would send them to do a long training. And it could be anywhere from three days to two weeks where we would train on all things related to feeding and nutrition for this population. And obviously, we can't do that anymore. So we we quickly switched to online training. So we have created a series of online courses that our partners can take in the field. We've, by the way, we've never had offices in the field. Our, our office is only here in Portland. And our model has always been to train local partners to run our programs. And so that has not changed. Luckily, we had that model already set up. So now we train our local partners through online courses that we've created that can include some like live webinars where we show these hands-on techniques. Like, um, here's how you feed a child with cerebral palsy who can't chew or here's how you weigh and measure a child with disabilities, um, because sometimes that's hard. And, and so we, you do need to see it. So we do that through a combination of these online courses and these live webinars. Um, we can set up emailed Q&As or discussion groups. So it's, it's, you can't just do it in courses. You need sort of this whole suite of supports. And do you imagine that that will be the future of Spoon moving forward, that you're able to be a little bit maybe more efficient or reach more partners through this kind of online-focused model? Or I do. Um, another way that we were fortunate is that we had spent several years before the pandemic developing an app that we use in the field. It's called Count Me In, and it is used by our partners to um, assess children's nutrition and feeding it sets up individualized care plans for them. And then we can see it all happening from our office in Portland. And that's the key that, you know, we can sign in in the morning and see during the last day how many children have been added to count me in, how many have been assessed, how are things going, are there kids in our programs who need to be assessed or, or looked at and it hasn't happened and because we have that app, it enables us to keep a close eye on what's going on in all of our programs. And so between the training tools and the app, we do think that we'll keep operating remotely for the most part and reach many more partners and therefore more children. You know, there may be cases when the world opens up where we'll want to go do something hands-on or support a partner but I think our travel is going to be cut drastically, and I, I think it's a good thing for many reasons. Yeah, I mean, it sounds similar. You know, at Green Empowerment, we're having a lot of, I think, similar relationships with our partner organizations as well because they've always been the you know front lines with communities, and it's just finding the best way to support them and being more efficient with you know limited resources and time. So I think that sounds pretty amazing. 
One question that comes to mind for me with that is through the app, are you able then, will you be able to kind of evaluate these new trainings to see if um, the impact for the, on the programs are similar, even though you've moved to remote trainings? Because some of the folks I imagine that use the app were trained in person. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose eventually we'll be able to compare. Um, we're getting a very large data set through the app that we will be able to parse in all kinds of different ways. And we're very motivated by that. Um, in addition to wanting to have impact on individual children, which we are seeing through the app, we're, we're seeing their nutritional status change for the better. Um, but in addition to that individual impact, we are motivated by the large data set that we can then take to decision makers. We can use it to advocate and make higher level change than we can just through a training. So that's sort of our theory of change um, as an organization that we will use the, the data to, to change things from the top down. And, and that, that gets back to your, I guess, one of your original questions of do you envision a world where spoon isn't needed? If we can get a good enough data set that we can make big enough change from the top down, then it'd be great if we weren't needed in certain locations. Yeah, I absolutely love when there's that really like local impact engagement, but that you can use that to influence change that you have demonstrated actually has real impact for, for kids that obviously are living in pretty vulnerable situations. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think our challenge is convincing decision makers that it's an issue in the first place, that these kids matter, their malnutrition rates are very high. And what we're seeing in one country is probably applicable in another country, the, the changes aren't that different from country to country. And that these simple changes that we can, can make do make a big difference. So there's sort of several levels of of things we have to convince decision makers of um, because it's rare that the decision makers are coming to us saying, we've got this big problem for children with disabilities and nutrition. It's not even on their radar. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, I have absolutely loved learning more about Spoon and your work and how thoughtful your organization is about addressing these needs. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with our audience? Another one of our things that happened during the pandemic is uh, one of our board members offered to do a podcast for us. So we've recorded, I think, four episodes so far, and we're waiting to record a few more before we launch. And And so hopefully that'll be happening in the next couple months. Great. So our folks can uh, stay tuned to learn more about um, global nutrition and feeding challenges. Imagine that would be more or less what the podcast is about. Yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for joining me today. And thank you for being a global change maker. Thank you, Andrea. GlobePDX is dedicated to keeping you connected and engaged. For resources from this podcast and more, check out our website. If you aren't already a member, please consider joining our GlobePDX community and feel free to email communications at globepdx.org with any questions. Stay tuned for new episodes of our podcast and please share with fellow change makers. This podcast is brought to you by GoPX with special support from Ted Shera. Thank you so much for volunteering your expertise with us.